Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution. A warm welcome to The Parent Show on Radio Verulam 92.6. FM, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. Now, we're sticking with the focus of COVID-19 on the show again this week and how it impacts our families and children. But we're approaching the topic from a few different perspectives this week. Um, We're going to be speaking to Beth Woodward, who's at Neve Solicitors, about how COVID-19 is affecting shared parenting and what you can do if one parent sees risk a little bit differently to the other. Then we're going to speak to Anita Devi, who is a specialist in special educational needs, and see how COVID-19 is impacting on our children. And to round up the show, we're going to speak to Dr. Polly Waite at Oxford and Reading University. She's a clinical psychologist. And we're going to speak to her about how parents need to speak to their children in very strange times. And obviously, the last thing we want to do is raise anxiety levels any more than they, they already are. A very warm welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia L. Curry. And tonight on the show, we're talking about a COVID-related issue. And one area that, you know, as a parents show, we wanted to explore is what the impact is on families and particularly families that have either separated or divorced. So we're really pleased to have Beth Woodward, who's a partner in the family department at Neve Solicitor, joining us on the show to give us a little bit of advice in that direction. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hello. It's lovely to have you on the parents show. So we're talking about separation and divorce in in COVID-19. So this involves custody, shared parenting. It's a very sensitive issue, isn't it, Beth, at the best of times? It is. And um, as you say, sensitive at the best of times. And at times like this, it does throw up its problems. Yeah. And COVID-19 must be really shining a light on it because, I mean, it's so contentious a topic. How How is it complicating things even further at the moment? Well, I think the problem is that the stay-at-home rules and the guidance issued by the court are open to interpretation and parents' perception of risk is different. Um, I know in my own household, I'm the relaxed one and um, and, and it, every, every individual has their own perception of risk. And if you're in a loving relationship, you can navigate this. If you're in a relationship with an ex-partner where there's an element of um, suspicion and distrust, it can be hard. So, yes, it has led to conflict as separated parents interpret the rules differently or one parent's point of view about how much their child should be exposed to risk um, differs from another parent. Um, The stay-at-home rules say that where parents do not live in the same household, children under 18 can be moved between their parents' homes and this is not... And and this establishes an exception to the mandatory stay-at-home requirement. The family courts have issued guidance, which is quite helpful 
um, Lydia, if you're happy for me to just um, run through it very quickly. That'd be really useful. Yes, please. Okay. So the decision about whether a child should move between um, two homes is for the child's parents to make after a sensible assessment of the circumstances. They need to take into account the the, um, child's present health, the risk of infection, the presence of any recognised vulnerable individuals in one household or the other. It goes on to say that the best way to deal with things is for parents to communicate with one another about their worries and what they think would be a good practical solution. Even if some parents think it's safe for contact to take place, it might be entirely reasonable for another parent to be genuinely worried about this. And therein lies the problem. It says that where parents are acting in agreement, um, agree that uh, an order made by the court, um, contact order, we now call them child arrangement orders, um, where that order, where they agree it should be temporarily varied, they're free to do that. Um, It would be sensible, I would say, for each parent to record such an agreement by email or text. But where parents do not agree to vary the arrangement set out in a court order, but one parent is sufficiently concerned that complying with the um, child arrangements orders would be against the current advice, then that parent may exercise their parental responsibility and vary the arrangement to one they consider to be safe. If after the event, the actions of a parent acting in this way is questioned, then the court is likely to look at how whether each parent acted reasonably and sensible. So it is quite crucial, I think, when you're deciding whether or not to vary the arrangements, you do need to think through, well, how would I reason and rationalise this and explain this um, to an objective bystander? Um, Then finally, the the, um, guidance goes on to say that where an order has been varied or existing arrangements have been changed, um, the courts expect alternative arrangements to be made to establish and maintain regular contact There's plenty of creative ways to do that, and we're blessed nowadays with FaceTime, etc. The key message is that where coronavirus restrictions cause the letter of a court order to be varied, the spirit of the order should nevertheless be um, delivered by making safe alternative arrangements. Um, And I've read this week guidance issued by um, CAFCAS, who are the Children and Family Court Advisory Service. They go one step further and they say that if any court-directed arrangements are missed, then um, parents must think about how they're going to be able to make up the missed time after the restrictions are lifted. That's incredibly interesting, Beth, and and really helpful to parents because the, so there there is there is some clarity. Some words are going to be harder to kind of understand, I suppose. Like what what constitutes rational, mm-hmm. and and how much is varying arrangements and. I guess that that's where the sticking points will probably come between parents, depending how positive or negative the relationship is between the parents. Yes, I think that if parents are able to have a sensible discussion, that's great. But it's where distrust creeps in. So I had one um, 
dad um, and his his ex-wife is very risk-averse, I would say, um, and she was worried that dad was continuing um, at work. So they agreed a quarantine of 14 days. So after he um, had stopped work, there was a 14-day period. Um, he didn't have any symptoms and so contact then um, resumed. They've got a little bit of a sticking point about how that time should be made up in the future, but they were able to reach an agreement. And Dad was able to see um, I mean, he'd been married to um, the mum and he knew that she was a cautious person and he was able to respect that. Fantastic. And I'd say the word respect is key when you're trying to negotiate these kind of things. I mean, I suppose in ways decisions made by either partner has a, can have a massive impact on each other because obviously if one parent is less risk averse um, and one parent is more risk averse, then one could be potentially exposing the other through the children to the coronavirus. So it's actually, it's quite serious, isn't it? It isn't like, oh, you know, you went out and you caught the flu and you should have been doing something. I mean, there are potentially deadly consequences. Yes, I agree. But um, that's, so child arrangement orders can be changed. They can vary rational conversations are the key and good communication that's the key things I was yes and um, the key message being that the spirit of the order should um, remain even if um, the letter of the order cannot be implemented and it must be a relief to parents that there is a chance to make up the time afterwards so if you did manage to get through 14 days of not seeing your children there's light because there's a chance of making up that time yes Fantastic. And if so, one parent does have the power to influence the other parent's understanding of social distancing to a certain extent. Yes. And so, um, that's and that that is good to know. So, for parent single parents out there who are co-parenting, you're not powerless. But what would what would the process be if you want your child arrangement order changed in any way? Well, you can, um, you can, the best thing to do is to record it in an email. Um, it is possible to make applications to court and the courts are still um, um, open to business, um, albeit remotely. So hearings are being conducted um, uh, over the telephone or over video conferencing. But it's not a quick solution. Um, and so it is worthwhile trying to reach an agreement and look at alternative means. Um, I know our local mediators all offer remote mediation sessions. Um, and one of the things that we've been doing um, in for um, um, families that we're involved with is where we've been discussing alternatives to court such as arbitration where you can refer a discrete or a specific issue to an arbitrator who can very quickly make a decision and that decision is as binding on parties as it would be if a court order was made it's then endorsed by the court that's that's excellent to know as well because I, I I mean I wasn't sure will courts be or open how do things continue so albeit by telephone 
courts are functioning, but a slower process, you, you've said. I think so, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a moving feast a little bit. I know that the hearings that I've, I've got coming up, they're all operative, um, but I think there's a bit of a pipeline waiting for um, new cases to be issued. And Beth, can I ask you if that kind of the ability for one partner to, to restrict access to the children based on the other partner's kind of exposure to the virus extends to ex-partners, new partners, if you like. So, for example, if if an ex-wife has a, a new partner who is a frontline key worker, how, do, how does that change the dynamic? Does the other parent have any influence over that situation? That's a good question. And it is one that's come up for me a few times now. Um, and um, I had one lady speaking to me, um, her ex um, lives with his parents which is all fine but he um, was spending the weekend with his girlfriend who was a key worker and so was her and so her child was going to school every day Um, and um, the lady um, that was asking for advice said to me you know I'm a single parent if my two children fell ill it would have dire consequences and it seems to me that the children are being exposed to unnecessary risk um, and she had asked him to not go and see the the girlfriend um, but he he said one thing and did another so um, what she decided to do was to um, find alternative ways of having contact so um, dad was coming to um, the house and sitting in the garden and speaking to the children that way and they were having daily FaceTime conversations another dad um had taken on the responsibility of some of the homeschooling um he made me chuckle because he said well yes for an hour's homeschooling i am doing about an hour's preparation um so he was doing it that way yes he was doing it that way um but it gave him an opportunity to speak to his children daily and he actually said that those facetime conversations were going much better than the social facetime conversations when the children were off not particularly wanting to have long conversations with their dads because they were quite little children brilliant i mean those kind of concrete examples that you're giving you're incredibly helpful because this is uncharted territory in in every respect for for every industry for every aspect of life so it, it's good to know that other people are finding their way through this um which is which is great um so what about if your separation or your divorce hasn't gone to court yet and you're you're trying to figure out um a child arrangement can that now go to court or is it only really urgent things that are going to court as far as i understand it is business as normal okay so applications can be made yes that's so things aren't in stasis in in that respect no brilliant that's great it's just that um i i haven't got personal experience of how urgent cases are being dealt with um i did read guidance from the court saying that um well as always the court of the judge um that they they there's a gatekeeper um, and so any new application that comes into a court is referred to that gatekeeper who makes a decision about how urgent um a particular issue is um and it 
uh, so it is really decided on a case-by-case basis um, how urgent um, an application might be considered by a father whose mother had, uh, who, whose um, ex had stopped contact. I think it would be difficult to justify a long-term, long-term cessation of contact. And again, don't, don't forget that there are inventive ways of ensuring contact happens. Um, so even if... Um, um, so if, for example, you're a mum and you've decided to stop contact because you deem that your children will be exposed to unnecessary risk, you, the court would be looking at, well, what other arrangements have you put, have you put in place? Okay, that's, that's great to know as well. Um, so, Anna, I mean, it's, it's great to hear stories of FaceTime and, you know, homeschooling and, and parents finding ways through to keep up contact, to keep communication, because ultimately the most important thing is that the child has consistent contact and, and, and that they stay the priority. Yes, absolutely. The children need to feel a sense of consistency and they also need to know that um, and, and, and not be overly anxious. Yeah, there's there are enough things to worry about out there at the moment, aren't there? Yes. Brilliant. And, and just one last question before we let you go, Beth. Finances, always a tricky issue. What happens, for example, if one parent has been furloughed or lost his job? How does that impact on maintenance or does it? How does that all work? Well, that's an interesting question, Lydia, because um, um, the guidance... Only this week, the, the government has issued um, new guidance. Up to this week, I was um, the advice I would give is: well, if a, if um, if a non-residence parent, let's say a father, um, is made redundant, then he has the right to apply to the child maintenance service for a variation of maintenance. And if that means that if anyone's income has, if his income has dropped by 25% or more, then um, he has the right for his um, maintenance to be reassessed. Of course, when somebody's furloughed, their income drops by 20%. Um, and so under the normal rules, their income, um, they, they, that wouldn't entitle a father to um, a reassessment of his child maintenance liability. However, the government have said this week that um, it, it, it would entitle a father to stop paying maintenance or reduce it. Um, and they've given some quite woolly guidance about um, um, the fact that they would that fathers um, can simply go ahead and do this. Um, and that's left me a little concerned because we need to um, there will be some fathers who take advantage of this at a time where the mum with care of the children um, will be having additional expense. So my advice is that um, that parents should have an open conversation and be prepared to back up the loss of income with proof. For example, um, if somebody is being furloughed, the government guidance says that they need to um, be sent a letter from their employer um, because if you suddenly unilaterally and on short notice um, change the maintenance arrangements it can cause long-term damage um, to your relationship with um, your, your with the um, other parent. Um, generally speaking the child maintenance service relies on information they are given from inland revenue about a payer's um, income and it's unclear at the moment 
how exactly things will pan out in the long term. But a father needs to be a little bit cautious about reducing his income now and then being, sorry, reducing his maintenance now, um, but his income for the year possibly not being too different from previous years because he could find himself um, um, faced with needing to make up arrears. It doesn't really we need further guidance and the people who will be policing this is largely the child maintenance service themselves who will be left to interpret the government guidance. Um, it's, it, if that's happening to you it's not a bad thing for you to go and um, take legal advice um, because um, as, as the days pass we'll understand more about how the child maintenance service is going to be applying rules. Um, if you've got a voluntary agreement, then the, the advice has really got to be communicate and if you've got nothing to hide, show that your income is reduced or is about to be reduced um, and have that conversation about what would be a fair level to pay. That's fantastic, Beth. So that I mean the level of detail, that's so helpful to parents and and, and really, really valuable advice. So thank you so much for joining us on the parents show. Beth Woodward from That's okay. Um, it's always would be like it would be lovely to be give be able to give really specific advice. Um, but what we have to do is we have to take the guidance from various people and put it together with a big pinch of common sense. Um, and that's the bit that can be difficult um, when you're too involved um, in in your own family and your own it's your own children you're talking about and you know obviously they're very they're the most precious thing you've got and you don't want to expose them to unnecessary risk absolutely i i think you've said it you've said it excellently and and you've really hit to the core of what parents who are separated or divorced i think are are have in the the center of their mind and should keep at the center of their mind sometimes i i guess everybody loses a bit of perspective when emotions get involved but um but it's uh, and, and everybody understands the laws. I mean, the situation is changing on a daily basis, but hopefully more clear guidance will come will come soon. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Beth, thank you so much for joining us on The Parents Show. Oh, thank you, Lydia. It was a pleasure. Lovely to have you on. That was Beth Woodwards, uh, who's a partner in the family department at Neves Solicitors. Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parents Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution. And welcome to Anita Devi, who's a specialist in SEN and disability and inclusion, who's CEO of Hashtag Team ADL. How are you, Anita? Very well, Cathy. Thank you very much for having me on the show today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we are, we've been talking over the past few weeks about how parents are coping with the current sort of unprecedented situation. And we wanted to talk about the parents of children with special educational needs. So what has been your experience from listening to the stories of parents in this situation at the moment? Thank you, Cathy. It is, as you say, an unprecedented time and it's been actually quite mixed, as you would expect. Children with special educational needs, disability and inclusion, some have opted to stay at home with their families. Some are still in school. So we've got a, actually a mixed um, situation here. 
For those who are at home, I think it has been a challenge for parents without a doubt, particularly where, you know, we've got situations where there are a number of children in the family. Some of the parents are also looking after their own parents, so looking after their elderly. But also we've got families that don't have access to Wi-Fi or families who don't have the space because actually if you've got two or three children and they're all on different devices trying to tap into some learning, that can also be a challenge. So I would say it's been very mixed for everyone. But what has helped, I think, is people working together. I don't think it's anyone's responsibility. We've got to work as a team. And SEN has always been about the team educators working with parents and carers because that's when we get the best for the children and in in your experience you know in my experience sorry parents of children with SEN are are just they are so used to um understanding where their support systems are and connecting with others they're very good at cultivating those support systems uh, perhaps more than other parents would you agree with that I think they're great advocates for their children and they really know their children and what their children need. I think the challenge comes, let's take a, you know, children who are now working at home. They don't necessarily have the support of an additional adult alongside them. There have been some teaching assistants who've kind of joined in online lessons and tried to come alongside. But that kind of human interaction support that you often get in a classroom that sometimes comes just by body language and sign language. I remember when I was in the classroom, I had um, a child who struggled with self-regulation and this led her to involuntary just engage in certain behaviours, which were not appropriate for that setting, you know, for that environment. And we developed a a signal between us that she knew, I, I could sense when she was about to go into that kind of, I just need to get up and do this. And I would just give her a signal and she knew this is not the time. And it's those kind of live interactions that happen in the classroom where the teachers know their children that I think is going to be the challenge for a number of parents at home. I think also the other thing to bear in mind, and this is whether your child is a special educational needs and has a disability or not, you know, studying in school for five hours is quite different to studying at home. The home is is a place that's associated with relaxation, with connections, with family time, with leisure. And suddenly rooms are being in the daytime converted into these work environments. And for some children, that's a quite a, you know, a difficult concept to grasp. That this is what usually where I just chill out and now I'm having to do my work. But also to do five hours on the trot at home is quite challenging. So, you know, My encouragement to parents would be think about how much time is reasonable. I don't think we can expect children to do a full on timetable day that they would normally do in school, surrounded by their peers, surrounded by breaks and their teachers and all that kind of stuff that goes with the environment in a home context. Absolutely. And so there's a need to really think about how much work we give them and how much time we allocate to that work. That's right, because I think there's a a misconception that they would be doing, you know, such solid hours of study and work at school. And actually, that's not really true because the whole day has so much diversity built into it in terms of different activities. And it's it's very well thought out and balanced. And we can't replicate that easily. No. And I think the peer interactions are a key part of that learning in school. And they kind of 
fuel or energize people. But when you're learning in isolation at home, you don't have that kind of energize individuals around you. So, you know, there is, I think we've just got to be realistic in our expectations. Anita, what other tips have you got in terms of the learning um, and the sort of the home learning that's going on for parents before we move on to thinking about how Senkos might be doing at the moment? So I would say to parents, if you know your children are struggling with the work, go and talk to the teachers, talk to the teachers, talk to the Senko, particularly around the volume of work. I've had some parents talk to me about there's just too much and their children are getting anxious about this. It's not, you know, it's not helping. And I've just encouraged them to go back to the school and renegotiate. This is what's possible in this time. And, you know, and if you think about early years, they've had to really hone it down to what are the key skills that we want the children to focus in on, because they're not going to cover the whole curriculum at this point. So I would say keep the conversations and the dialogue with school very open. Um, Give them feedback. This is very new for schools and teachers, head teachers, senior leaders are doing their best, but they are learning as they're going along. And the more we can actually work as a team and get feedback, I think that helps all of us to grow. Ultimately, it has to be about the children. I mean, I really love your idea of a sort of a partnership approach. You know, it's so easy at the moment because we're all feeling very, very frustrated, potentially, to sort of blame the teachers and saying that's not good enough and I can't do that. And if we assume a a partnership approach, it just it sort of brings some health into that relationship, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, teachers need feedback as much as anyone else. So going back and saying this didn't work would help them set either the next piece or actually help them refine what that piece of work is. And sometimes that feedback can be simply, okay, he can do this piece of work, but needs three days to do it, not the one day you've allocated. Yes, that's very important. So it is about managing each other's expectations in a way that feels, you know, positive and and and. We, we all want to be able to do things. We don't want to get in trouble with teachers. We don't want our children to get in trouble. We, want, we all want to do a good job, don't we? Absolutely. And I, I don't think it's about getting in trouble, but teachers can't know what's going on unless they're told. And I think, you know, it, it would be disadvantageous to the child if we just sat there and just kind of assumed that the problem will go away. The best thing we can do when we've, we're not happy about something or we don't feel comfortable is just let's talk. Let's talk. Let's figure it out together. So you would absolutely advocate um, feeding back in a positive and and what things that could be improved between parents and educators. You've mentioned anxiety. I wanted to just refer back to that. I feel like I don't know. Anecdotally, I've I've understood that many uh, children, particularly with SEN, might be struggling very much with anxiety at the moment because normal routines may be have been dismantled and parents are struggling themselves. Um, And this is the case for all parents. What would you say about the alleviation of anxiety? What can parents do to alleviate anxiety so that learning perhaps takes place more easily? Obviously, this is an unknown time. And yes, I think anxiety levels are high for a number of people. I think early on, so we're now, I think, in week five, early on, a number of schools encouraged parents to establish routines at home you know, to still have some sort of rhythm to the day, not just get up when you feel like it, but let's 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 be fixed and focused at work by nine o'clock. Let's work for a couple of hours or have a break, you know, have some sort of a routine and a structure. I do think that helps. I think breaking down tasks. So, 
we've already talked about what's reasonable to do more time. But then also thinking about, you know, anxiety and what alleviates anxiety for each of us is very different. It's a bit like well-being. We, different things feed into our well-being. So in that day, balancing out things that would work for everyone involved, you know, what helps that young person calm themselves down? Is it their favorite music? Is it, some, you know, some time out with their favorite game? Is it going for a walk? Is it just talk time? So making time in between the day, just say, okay, so let's just take a quick break. How are you feeling? What do you know? What are you not clear on? What are the things that are bothering you? And just having those regular conversations and tapping into that. Um, but then if you find a regular pattern of anxiety, looking at what could be embedded to support that. Might be some creative activity, some drawing, some constructive activity, making something, going out for a cycle or on the trampoline outside. Things that would work for that individual. Lovely. And we, you know, how on earth are Senkos feeling at the moment? We're hoping that you know, you might be able to tell us a little bit more about how it feels for for passionate professionals who are so used to being, as you say, in front of that child every day in that classroom, doing what they just, you know, feel so caring about and, and, and desperate to help. And they must feel very powerless at the moment in some ways. So we've been coaching Senkos since we went into lockdown. And yeah, it, it's... I mean, across the board, it's very varied, obviously, depending on their experience, their background, their school context. This is a whole new world and they've still got to do their statutory responsibilities, but in a different way. So many of the Senkas I've spoken to, I've talked about how they keep you know, in contact with parents without overwhelming parents, how they make sure they get all their tasks done and prepare the children, not just for closing this year and moving on, but also you know, welcoming new children coming into the school. Um, a lot of the schools have children leaving at the end of this year. And depending on when things begin to go back to a new normality, say, how do they bring the children back into that context or prepare them for their next stage? Year sixes who've been preparing for their SATs, there's a lot of disappointment there. And so they've had to deal with that. There are annual reviews for education and healthcare plans that are also having to take place. In the majority, SENCOs are consulting with parents and asking them how they feel about doing it online. And where it's not urgent and parents are uncomfortable with that, they are proposing a postponement. And in the other cases, they are actually delivering it online. So it's very mixed. It's a whole new world, if I'm honest with you. We know, you know, SENCOs on the whole know their role, but now they're having to do their role from a distance. And we are, you know, within the teaching profession, we are people people, if you like. We work best when we're interacting with each other and we're having to maintain those relationships from a distance. So it's not easy. But all the Senkos I've talked to, incredibly dedicated, looking after their own kids at home as well, many of them. So quite a challenge. Wow. Quite a challenge. Um, tell us a little bit about what I've heard that you offer. You, you've mentioned you offer coaching for Senkos. What about training events? So, you know, if you're a Senko listening, what is it that they can access at the moment? So, yeah, as I said, we've, we've, we've been offering since lockdown 30 minutes free coaching for any Senko and they can book that online. We've started, we, we host five accredited courses for Senkos. And the one that we feel is the priority at the moment is preparing our new Senkos. 
So many have taken up post mid-lockdown. Some are about to take up post going into September or later this term. It's a, it's a hard role to step into. And so what we're trying to do is we'll be delivering a day for them of training online, which is accredited. It starts this Friday. Again, you can find details on our website. And we've also hosted a pre-Easter Senko network. So this was Senkos from all across the country coming together online, talking about some of the issues. We have a post Senko network this Thursday. And in fact, one session is so full, we've had to do an additional session. So you can find details of that on Eventbrite if you search hashtag Senko 5 a day. And then finally, the British Association for Leadership Management, I'm hosting a chat, a live chat for them on Twitter tomorrow evening for Send Leaders. So any of those opportunities, they are more than welcome to join in. So Anita, just to conclude, there's a whole community that Senkos can really you know, tune into. What is the best website for them to really, you know, make sure they're not missing anything? So, yeah, there is a lot of communities and there are sub-communities. I couldn't say that there was one website, but there are a number of key people to follow on Twitter. Happily, if they get in touch with us, we'll steer them in the right direction. We're happy to do that. We've obviously got a multi-agency team as well. So, yeah, I would just say, but also to to discern what they're hearing because the vi- the virtual environment, is very noisy and there is a lot of information out there at the moment and it's really important that they think about and discern what they're receiving and how does it fit and really is that a priority. Um, Just to give you an example, we had some Tenkos being informed that they needed to do X, Y and Z, let's say, when in actual fact that isn't something they really need to do and it was creating work for themselves. So I would just say, you know, ensure that you tap into someone who's experienced, reliable, and go and check out any information you get, go and check out with a second or third person, just to make sure that you've understood it accurately. Lovely. Well, listen, Anita, thank you so much for joining us and all the very best with your wonderful and valuable work. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Kathy. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia L. Corey. And tonight, I'm really delighted to be welcoming Dr. Polly Waite, and she's from Oxford University, Oxford and Reading University, and she's a clinical psychologist there. She specializes in uh, adolescent anxiety disorders. So we're going to talk to Polly in just a second about COVID-19 and the work that she's doing at the moment. Hi, Polly. You're very welcome to The Parents Show. Hi, Lydia. Thanks for having me on. So... Polly, anxiety is a growing problem. It was a problem before COVID-19 came on the scene. So can I ask you, with COVID-19 in the background, is it complicating the situation in relation to anxiety with children and teens even more? Yeah, so we know that the rates of anxiety have increased over the past few years amongst children and young people. Um, And the COVID pandemic is likely to be fueling anxiety for all of us. It's such a normal response to the current situation. Um, And we've recently been running our co-space survey to find out how best to support families around their children's mental health during the COVID pandemic. Uh, We've been asking families about how they feel about COVID. And our early findings were that the majority of young people think this is a really serious issue. Um, And around a third of them are worried about things like missing school. Uh, Nearly half of them are worried about friends and family getting ill and around a quarter of them are worried about themselves getting ill. So we know that this is contributing to young people's anxiety 
And this very much fits with what we've been seeing anecdotally. Some children are struggling with it. But on the whole, young people are pretty resilient and many coping with it well. And, you know, some might even be enjoying elements of the lockdown. So although they might be missing friends, uh, feeling sad about things that have been cancelled, there might be other aspects that, you know, aren't so bad, like a bit more sleep, a bit less academic pressure. That's really interesting, Polly. So there are silver linings to it, too. Yeah, that's right. I think like like all these things, there's often a real mix in terms of how people are reacting. And I'm also surprised to hear that one of the elements is missing school. So you mean a sense of guilt or missing out on learning? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, they are worried about the future and what that means. And, you know, we know, particularly young people that might now have had exams cancelled, some of them are really worried about what that means for their future. For others, they're worried about, you know, not really fully understanding schoolwork. Um, I'm worried about missing things and having trouble catching up when they go back into the classroom. Yeah, I mean, it it is understandable and it's unprecedented in every way. I mean, and I'm sure the problem is you can't get the reassurance from parents you want because parents are probably a little bit lost at the moment, too. Yeah, definitely. So so this is you're talking about children just generally, not children with underlying anxiety issues. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But we do know, I mean, we're asking information to find out within our survey whether there's been an increase um, in children with anxiety issues, so general anxiety amongst children during the pandemic. So uh, we'll be able to look at over time as socialisation, as social isolation progresses, we'll be able to look at this. Uh, There was an interesting survey from Young Minds, though, with um, young people with existing mental health difficulties, and uh, over 80% of them said their condition had worsened. So you know, we know for some young people, um, you know, it, it they probably are really struggling for some that had pre-existing mental health difficulties. We think probably it's a bit of a mix. So for some young people who might have generally worried a lot about everyday events or worried about getting ill and things like germs and contamination, or for young people that have low mood, this is a really challenging time. Um, but interestingly, the most common anxiety disorder we see in teenagers is social anxiety, where they really worry about being negatively evaluated in social situations. Um, so by their peers or other people like teachers. So actually, some of these young people might find there are less triggers right now because they're not in school. But when lockdown ends and schools reopen, you know, they might be the young people that are struggling to get back in. And we know that there are other young people who find generally attending school regularly for other reasons difficult. And again, you know, they're young people that we are concerned about. Um, Good evening, uh, Polly. This is uh, Seema. I'm also on the line here uh, and I'd like to ask you a few questions, if I may. Hi, Seema. Hi. Um, In relation to that, what you just said about children reacting to their peers, that kind of social anxiety. Anxiety. One of the things that I read from Emerging Minds was this idea about trying to stick to routines. And from a lot of the things that I understand from, from my own children and their kind of social circles is a lot of children, a lot of teenagers, let's say, they're sleeping very, very late. They're also waking up very, very late. And I wonder whether that is a cause for concern because obviously then other children then think, well, my my peers are perhaps, you know, sleeping in and maybe I should be sleeping in. And if I can't, then I'm not as cool as them. Um, their parents perhaps are more relaxed. And the importance of keeping to those routines. What do you think about that kind of juggling those two things? 
I think it's a huge challenge right now, isn't it? But I think, you know, it is about striking some kind of balance. Families have got to function as a unit. Um, So I think, you know, it can be a real problem if you've got someone who's sleeping in until the afternoon and has sort of adopted more of a kind of nocturnal sleeping pattern. So I think there is a, a compromise to be had and a conversation to be had because, you know, many young people would have been having an alarm going off at 6.30 in the morning or something. So actually... You know, they could have a few more hours extra sleep, but in a way that doesn't have a detrimental impact on the rest of the family. And we know in terms of, you know, managing young people's mood, that actually having some kind of routine social contact with other people, all of those things can actually be helpful in protecting young people's mental health right now. Okay, so that's good to know. So your general advice is having some sort of routine, but still letting them lie in. So maybe sleeping in till 1030 or whatever would would be okay but trying to keep it going, maybe, I don't know, at the weekdays, maybe having a bit of a routine is more important than at the weekends. Yeah, that would be our suggestion. But I think, you know, families have just got to do what works best for them. Uh, but I think that's about all members of the family coming together and reaching some solutions that works for everyone. And Polly, when we're talking about children with underlying anxiety issues, you mentioned that for some, actually, the socialisation is giving them a little bit of respite from triggers that stress them. What about those who have underlying issues, like worries about the world, like a global pandemic must really be kind of their worst nightmare come true in lots of ways? Yeah, I think that's right. So I think for the children that we see with more generalized anxiety, um, who worry about, you know, everyday events, those are the ones that are often really struggling. But actually, when we see young people with anxiety difficulties, often, they have more than one kind of anxiety problem. So for example, our teenagers with social anxiety, you know, two thirds of them will have generalized anxiety as well. Anxiety often tends to be quite comorbid with other kinds of anxiety problems too. So Yeah, I think for many of them, they are really struggling with the uncertainty right now and really not knowing what's going to happen and what the future is going to hold. And it's very difficult for us as parents to be able to reassure them because we don't know either. And we've all got to live with a certain amount of uncertainty and that can be hard. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you is, so what do we say? I mean, they're looking to us for reassurance. Is reassurance the right thing to give them when we don't really know? Will they pick up that we don't really know what we're talking about? What's the best way to address this with children with underlying anxieties? Yeah, that, that is a good point. I mean, it is good to reassure children that it's normal to feel anxious um, and that it's normal to feel lots of other things too right now. You know, feeling angry and sad and frustrated is normal too. But I think we need to be really careful about giving reassurance over things that we have absolutely no control over. Um, You know, so if your child's worrying, for example, about their grandparents, you know, we can't say for sure nothing bad's going to happen much as we'd love to. And you want your child to be able to trust what you say. So I think instead it's about trying to focus on what is within your child's control. You know, what can they do to protect themselves and help other people? And, you know, that's about things like following the government's advice around social distancing, washing hands you know, offering to buy groceries for people nearby. But I think also, you know, if they are missing, you know, someone and worrying about them, it's about thinking about what action can they take? Is it about, you know, video calling granny or making a card for her or doing other things that can help them feel connected, but trying to move away from worrying as a way of dealing with it to actually taking action? 
That's really helpful. And I'm sure parents out there, the automatic reaction is to go, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, don't put it out of your mind. But actually, that's not always the right thing to do. Yeah, that's right. It's really important to, um, you know, talk to children and really reinforce that idea that it's understandable to feel worried and to not minimise or, or dismiss worries by sort of going, oh, you know, don't be silly. Because it's really important that your child feels that you're taking seriously what they're worried about. Um, and also by finding out more about the worries, you can check out if there's anything that they've misunderstood. It might be that there's, um, you know, they think something that you know actually isn't true. They might worry, you know, someone in the road's got coronavirus and this means that your family will get it and they might die. And that gives you a really good opportunity to correct any information, you know, and you can explain that it can be a bit scary to know somebody that has it, but most people just get a fever and a cough and they're not going to die. So it's an opportunity to jump in there um, keep the conversation quite fact-based, but be able to correct any information in a way that's appropriate to your child's age. But also, you know, don't worry if you don't know the answer. That's okay to say you don't know. There's so much uncertainty and it will be impossible to answer some of the questions that your children will have. And so rather than trying to remove all of that uncertainty and find the answers, sometimes it's helpful just to explain, you know, there are things we just don't know and it's okay not to know them. But there are other people around, you know, other adults, there are doctors, nurses, scientists, all these people that are working really hard to find out the answers to some of these things that right now we might just not know. Yes, I like that. In my house, I say there are people with very big, big brains, much larger than ours, much larger than mine, that are working on this. So it's okay. Polly, I wanted to also, um, when we're talking about um, how to deal with the questions, one of the things that I read um, in the Emerging Minds uh, information is about not hiding your own anxiety. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, you know, many parents are feeling really stressed and anxious at the moment, especially those that are trying to combine work with homeschooling and looking after their family. It is such a difficult challenge. But that's right. Children, you know, they will be looking to the adults around them for clues on how they should be responding, whether they should feel worried. So if you as a parent are talking a lot about feeling worried and stressed, you know, some children will pick up on that. So it's really about trying to get the right balance. You know, you don't want to pretend that everything is absolutely fine when things aren't. But I think instead, it's about trying to see this as a good opportunity to help children recognise that a certain amount of anxiety and stress is normal. Uh, But the crucial thing is for them to see how to deal with it. So for you as a parent to model being a bit stressed, but coping. And so that might be about you, you know, showing them you writing a to do list for all the work jobs so you feel a bit less overwhelmed or maybe saying, right, I'm just going to go and phone my friend to have a chat to let off a bit of steam or I'm going to go for a run so that your child can see you under a little bit of stress, but they can also see you putting in some good strategies to help you cope. Um, that's yeah no that's that is really helpful and not always instinctive I think I think sometimes as a parent especially with younger children it does feel like a natural instinct to just try to allay all of their fears by saying no everything's fine so I think that's really helpful Um, another thing that I thought was really helpful was this issue about not raising things at bedtime or if a child asks you a a tricky question at bedtime um, what's the best thing to do about that Yeah, I think that's right. Bedtimes can be really fraught, can't they? And, you know, that moment where you're trying to tuck your child up and they suddenly tell you something they're really worried about, you know, I think can fill lots of parents with with dread. Um, And so I, I think that's right. It's really important to kind of pick your time. It's obviously good to talk to children at the time when they're raising a worry. 
but sometimes that's not possible and and you really want to try and avoid times when you're feeling stressed or tired or busy and often before bed things seem a bit scarier and more worrying for children so I think at these times often it's more helpful to let them know that you've heard their worry and you do definitely want to talk to them about it but then maybe agree another time to have the conversation and stick with that plan so maybe say you know when should we talk about this tomorrow Um, and then come up with some other things that the child can switch to thinking about instead of engaging in worry can often be really helpful. Thanks, Polly. And I just wanted to, I mean, you've been involved in a fantastic COVID-19 resource called Emerging Minds. We've mentioned it a couple of times and we we intend to put that on the Parents Show Facebook page for all parents. It's, as Seema said, it's incredibly useful. Tell us what parents can do to feed better into the research that you're, you're doing at the moment. Yeah, so we've got our co-space survey, which is running based at the University of Oxford. And this survey is tracking children and young people's mental health throughout the COVID-19 crisis. So it involves families filling in a survey online every month. um, And that's of families actually now aged from parents of children aged from two to 16. And those survey results are really important because they'll help us identify what protects children and young people in terms of their mental health over time and at particular stress points. And then we can help work out what advice, support um, and help parents would find most useful. And we're feeding that back into policymakers and professionals who are working with children and young people. And how many minutes does it take to fill in? It takes 15 minutes the first time because we ask a bit of background information that we don't ask at subsequent time points. And then it takes 10 minutes um, at the the um, following time points. And if your child is aged from 11 to 16, there's also an opportunity for them to fill in the survey as well, because we're really keen to hear from young people as well as parents. So this is a fantastic opportunity for parents actually to feed into the process, be part of it. And, and you want parents from all types of backgrounds right? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So we're really keen to hear from everybody, um, but particularly people who might be from more vulnerable groups. So for example, people who have children potentially with pre-existing mental health or other difficulties or looked after children. So uh, yeah, and from all parts of the UK as well. So we're really interested to get a real representation so we can really get a good sense of how individuals and how we can support them how everyone's coping. Fantastic, Polly. And we'll be sharing the link to that survey on the Parents Show Facebook page and really encourage parents across St. Albans and Harpenden to to take a few minutes and fill it in because it's really incredible to support, to get the opportunity to support you. Thank you. That would be great. And we've also on the Emerging Minds website um, got a really nice resource uh, for supporting families with lots of links to Uh, things that they might find helpful talking about COVID or other kinds of um, issues that might be coming up for them right now. Fantastic. Dr. Polly Waite, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. So that's it for this evening's show. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Lydia L. Corey. And I'm Seema Barker. It's been a pleasure as always. And tune into the show next week. Neve solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution.